Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. So, do we want to get started? Okay. Um, And obviously what we're trying to do here, uh, I'm going to roll through this stuff fairly quickly. But the, the idea is, I think, to continue to equip mentors for the couples who are doing the things that Roger over at, at uh, Rock Harbor is doing, and then maybe any that I might walk with in my premarriage, but to give them some mentor couples for the first year or so. So we felt it was helpful for you to at least have a framework for conversation uh, mine is slightly different than Roger's. We obviously cover the same basic materials. His uh, is uh, more in depth than I'll do, and they do workshops and uh, workbooks, as you know. So, but anyway, this is going to be what I do, and it's going to build on the conversation we had last time. I'm just realizing, Michael, I'm in your way here, so I don't know if it makes any difference. Um, but um, so, so the the theological foundation that we worked on last time and laid out was Ephesians 1, uh, Ephesians 5, Genesis 1, 2, marriage as contrast with the Genesis 3 marriage. I made the point that the Genesis 1, 2, Ephesians 5 marriage reflects God's intent, why he invented marriage in the first place for both, not just marriage, but the relationships between men and women generally. Um, and uh, uh, this is then intended to model that. And, the, uh, and always works when put into appropriate practice. Genesis 3 marriage is the default marriage, the one that ends up getting chosen more frequently. It doesn't work very well, but, it, but it's the default. It's where we go um, when uh, we're um, um, ashamed or afraid or... Uh, I just realized this doesn't point at anything, so that's interesting. It doesn't reflect off the who's it. <laughs> Maybe that's it. Let's go with that. Uh, but um, so Genesis 1 and 2 and Ephesians 5 is about the establishment and then the reestablishment of image of God uh, as uh, 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 requiring mutuality or collaboration, partnership, whatever language we want to use, uh, as a framework or foundation for empowerment, for, for, for using whatever personal power we have by whatever means we acquire to lift up, encourage and empower one another, uh, never for dominion or domination or authority marriages, nor relationships between men and women, nor relationships between persons and persons are built for authority as the framing device of those relationships. They're all built for mutuality with the respect for one another's gifts. And then the coordination of those gifts uh, uh, for empowerment purposes, move. Uh, then uh, the final two in Genesis 2 is for oneness, uh, requiring another in order to, to be who I am, uh, and intimacy that enables that. And in those five dimensions, social, intellectual, emotional, uh, physical, and spiritual intimacy. Genesis 3 uh, is about shame. Uh, they knew that they were naked, so they hid themselves. They start to hide from each other. Uh, they are in the garden, hear the voice of the Lord in the garden in the cool of the day. They're afraid, and so they hide themselves. So shame and fear lead to hiding first from each other, 
then from God, and finally blame, which is ultimately a hiding from myself. So increasingly a disintegration, uh, first from others, which is required for me to work, uh, from God, which is fundamental, and then the misuse of power. If you perceive yourself to be in the superior position, you'll use your power for domination, if you see yourself in the inferior position, you use your power for ma- ma- manipulation to accomplish end games and to acquire more power. So that's kind of where we were last time. And I don't, I don't know if you have any questions you want to push in on it yet. I think that's kind of, kind of self-explanatory uh, from, our, from our conversation. Uh, so then the final piece is uh, that love is a disposition, it's a leaning in, it's an orientation towards that then eventuates in a choice. I'm going to choose to love. I'm going to choose then to act in the love that I have chosen. And then as I do that, sometimes love is a feeling, other times not so much. Attraction uh, is important. But it's not the end-all, be-all, do-all of relationship. You will inevitably be attracted to persons other than those to whom you are married. This doesn't mean something's wrong. It just means that the wiring is working right. We're, we're, we are attracted to persons for various reasons. Um, what I do with that uh, is, of course, where, where the issue is. And like we talked about last time, divorce occurs in fairly predictable places and times, and it's not uncommon for attraction to play a major part of that, attraction to others in that second and largest blip of the divorce statistic, which is between the five to seven years when I failed to start to do the hard work of building into my own marriage and taking one another for granted and sexuality becomes boring and our friendship, because it wasn't properly founded, doesn't continue to thrive. Our kids come along and we're distracted. All kinds of other things happen in that, in that blip. And coincidentally, quote-unquote, uh, that is often then when a secondary attraction comes in that somebody who listens or honors or values or whatever. Uh, so that's kind of where we were last time. Yeah. Any questions or comments, thoughts you want to push into before we move in? Because I'm going to build now... In, on this, in the five domains that I like to talk about when I'm doing pre-marriage counseling, communication, conflict resolution, uh, money, sexuality, and spirituality. So that's where we'll be for the next three and a half hours. And then lunch. And then it'll be all over. Okay. So, uh, building on the foundation first with communication. Uh, the problems that we discover in marriages with communication are, first of all, assumptions. And in the early stages of marriage, the primary assumption that is made is, if you love me, you will understand me. If you love me, you will understand me. That means, if you don't understand me, it must mean that you don't love me. The logic is not clear out loud. Nobody says that out loud. But those are the implications that drive the nature of the relationship. That, if that makes sense. Now, as you get older, you realize how dumb that is, hopefully. Uh, it is very possible that you are married to someone who will never understand you and because of the nature of the disparate, disparate persons, personalities, right? But as it pertains specifically to communication, 
i.e. you don't understand what I mean, you don't understand what I'm getting at. Um, the assumption is, again, like I said, if you loved me, you would understand me, or you would... Uh, or, the other piece that goes along with this is, is the expectation that we will always work as hard married to understand one another as we have done uh, prior to getting married. You'll notice in couples, at least I've noticed in couples that I walk with in pre-marriage, that they work very, very hard in the initial stages uh, to understand each other. They give each other the benefit of the doubt. There's all kinds of grace for misunderstandings and so on. Then as they move to courtship, that starts to get the, the it starts to rub a little bit. And unless there's a decision to lean in and a decision to con- keep doing the work, uh, that often can create a bit of a barrier. Then they move into engagement and communication becomes more and more challenging, uh, principally because in engagement, it is often the first time the couple is having to use an, a vocabulary of work, whereas before they've always used a vocabulary of, of play. Remember, most dating relationships, even courting relationships, are 75, 80% of our time is spent playing together, going to movies, going to Disneyland, going out on dates, all kinds of wonderful things, talking about things that matter and dreams and so on and so forth. Then we get engaged, and now we've got to plan a wedding. And that's often the first time they've had to work together and discover that the vocabulary of play is no longer appropriate and that in fact going forward in marriage only 10 to 15 percent of marriage time is play time most of the rest of it is work time so the vocabulary of dating doesn't help at all as we move into uh, 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 marriage and so the um, uh, the uh, uh, expectations of clarity and understanding uh, uh, kick in there the other piece is um, the assumption, I should have backed up on, I uh, should have mentioned this, but uh, one of the assumptions is that I'm a pretty good communicator. Because most of the other people in my life kind of get me most of the time. So if there's a problem in understanding in our relationship, um, guess where the fault might lie? <laughs> right? Because I, 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 I'm pretty clear most of the people in my life get me most of the time. So if you don't, I'm just saying, there's a pretty good chance it's you, right? Uh, and, 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 of course, this then moves us. You can hear the Genesis 3 language in there, right? The Genesis 3 language of fear or insecurity or, or whatever it is. Um, so that, that's an assumption as well that, that we, we, we work on. Um, and I, I'm going to keep rolling. If I'll, I'll try and remember to stop, but if you have questions or things you want to push in or clarifications, please, we obviously can take the time for that. The other thing that um, is important to notice is that when you start to do work communication, you discover that there are two radically different languages being spoken Uh, First is a gender-based language. Men and women use words, use vocabulary, use language in very, very different ways. Uh, From almost from preschool, almost from the development of language phase. So little girls tend to speak sooner, uh, develop vocabulary faster, and use more words all the way through junior high and into low high school. 
boys tend to use gestures, uh, grunts, um, signs. They don't speak often as soon, and they don't catch up on vocabulary and language facility until high school. Um, again, just because girls use more words doesn't mean they're better communicators. It just means they use more words. Just because boys don't use as many words and use gestures, grunts, and other signs doesn't mean they're not good communicators. It's just that the ways of communication are different. Those are different languages, right? Women tend to be much more adept at interpreting male language than men are at interpreting female language. So even though women use more words, men don't pick up on the 90% of the meaning, for the most part, men don't pick up on the 90% of meaning that is not words. 90% of the content of what communicate is nonverbals, tone of voice, gestures, facial expression, posture, all of those things uh, are way more communicative. 90% of the content is communicated in those kinds of dynamics. Women as a general, 75-80% of women are much, much better at picking up on those things than are men. Uh, boys use, from the beginning, use words competitively. They use words to define territory. They use words to know where the, where the ground is. Girls use words collaboratively in preschool. They use words to collect, generally. Um, that starts to shift as we move through junior high and middle school, but from the beginning, world, girls use words, little girls tend to use words uh, in those collaborative kinds of ways. Boys use words tend to more or less competitively. So you carry that through. Deborah Tannen um, uh, has done a couple of landmark, I think for me it was landmark, I don't know if it is anymore, uh, but studies on men and women in communication, particularly in the workplace. And she has drawn a, a correlation between the ways words work in a male-dominated workplace and the likelihood that women have of being able to thrive in that environment because their words, they use vocabulary and words differently. Uh, and so this is just a sociological study that kind of frames what we're after here. Um, the second thing that occurs is that each family system is its own culture. And culture uses words as markers. So words are cultural artifacts, if I can use that, that language. They are not just dictionary defined. They have emotional content to them, Is that, if that makes sense. And so I can agree with you in a moment on the dictionary definition of something, but the emotional responsive meaning of that will be radically different for you than me, depending on our family system. So if we went around the room, for example, and just asked you to talk about the emotional content or the meaning of the word Christmas, my guess is that we'd probably get five or six different cultural, there might be some that are kind of sister languages, but my guess is that they would probably be radically different in terms of the emotional content of that term. Now, the problem is that you don't know that until you hit the wall of misunderstanding. Let's spend Christmas with my family. Right? 
Well, depending on the emotional content of Christmas and family, those have very different meanings to the person saying it than they do to the person hearing it. Uh, and like my, like my family, for example, my sister and I and my mom and dad, uh, close family members were at distance. So Christmas for us was, was if dad was not working, uh, which I can remember a few occasions in which that was the case. Uh, we would, we would get, get we, Christmas Eve would be putting a puzzle together. It was the quiet. It was nice. The four of us, uh, Christmas presents never got opened until Christmas morning because that's the way it was. We didn't know why. It was just our culture. So I married Judy, comes from a large family. She's, she is, uh, you know, one of five siblings. By the time I marry into the family, there are children from the older siblings. And we go for our first Christmas together to her family's home. Remember, for me, Christmas is nice, neat, orderly, quiet. We put a puzzle together. So Christmas Eve, we're sitting, putting a puzzle together, except now instead of four of us around the table, there are like ten of us around the table. And pieces are flying all over, and people are bantering and, and, and jabbing one another because that's the love language in the family system. And it's like, oh, what kind of crazy am I into here, right? And, and my, one of my brothers-in-law is... is is needling another brother-in-law uh, by asking me questions about uh, fine theological things. And he's I just realized halfway through the conversation I'm being triangled and I don't even know what's going on and this kind of thing, right? And then Christmas morning comes up and, 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 and my family, Christmas morning is one present at a time. We unwrap it carefully. We ooh and ah with each other's gifts. We make sure we write down who it came from. We wrap the wrapping paper. My dad collects the wrapping paper, puts it in the trash. And Judy's family, we've got these, these, by the time we're all done, we've got 10 plus mom and dad. So that's, and then we have kids and presents are just flying through the, I mean, literally flying through the air. We've got the older nephews who are in charge with distribution and they're just chucking them all over the air and people are if the tree does not fall over at least once it hasn't been a good christmas all right so it's yeah now that's an emo- for as, as an introvert i don't want to ever do that again ever do that again right so 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 that that that's a tiny little example uh what does vacation mean What does dinner mean? Do you see? And so you think, think through that. And, and again, it's like, well, yeah, but that's not a big deal until the pile of those things gets higher and higher and higher and higher and higher. And what makes it challenging is that you don't even know you're speaking a different language until you say a word and elicits a response other than what you had anticipated should be the response to what you were getting. So uh, family system and, and, and culture is a, is a major one. Uh, next, basic communications theory. You guys were all in the soul care class, so this is part of that. And so I'm just going to whip through this fairly quickly. Okay, We begin uh, with the communicator who chooses a message, who puts it through a channel, 
who uh, sends it to the receiver who receives. So the path would be the communicator has an intended effect. Remember that we rarely, uh, in, in the communication rarely breaks down when uh, we are doing shopping lists and stuff like that. So just content, although sometimes it does there too, because you discover if you go shopping and are told to pick up milk, that there are 83 different kinds of milk and inevitably without, like she knows what she means when he, she says pick up milk. But I don't know what she means when she says pick up milk, right? Now, that's fairly easy to resolve now in the days of cell phones and how many husbands and wives are wandering around Vaughn's with their phone to their ear making sure they get the right water or whatever it is. But rarely does communication fail at those kinds of levels. Usually it fails when there's an intended effect. That is, I want an outcome. I want a response. I want something to happen. I want her or him to feel something or do something as a result of the communication, not just know something. Uh, so that then moves into the actual content of the message that then works itself through the message channel receiver and finally is received uh, in the receiver's mind and heart perceived content, and then finally actual effect. So the goal is that the intended effect and the actual effect be the same. The difficulty is that at, there is noise that occurs, uh, at, at every, and it occurs at every level. Sometimes the receiver is not paying attention. They're watching TV. They're reading a book. They're listening to something else. They're thinking about something else. Sometimes it's external noise. Sometimes it's internal noise. But that noise mars the effectiveness of the communication. Sometimes it occurs in the channel. That is, uh, I mean something as the communicator by the channel I choose, but the receiver's interpretation of that channel is different. So for me, like I told you the story of our single rose, right? Do you remember that? Uh, when we first moved down to California, I would stop off at the florist on the way home, right, and buy a single red rose, took it home to Judy, love kisses. That's because that's what red roses mean. I stopped off one day. They were out of red rose, bought a single yellow rose. I took it home to Judy, and I gave it to her, and she said, what did you do? <laughs> right? And it took us a while to sort out what that meant. But at the end of the day, what it meant was, I'm sorry, because that's how she had been trained to interpret yellow rose. Right, because I did something wrong. That's what a yellow rose means. I'm sorry. So her question made perfect sense. What did you do? I, on the other hand, was saying, I love you, to which what did you do is not an appropriate response. Right? So that's, that's channel. Right? So you think, for example, of the love languages, Gary Chapman's uh, stuff, which is quite wonderful. The problem is we always communicate best in our own love language. And do not think to translate into the love language of the person with whom we are communicating. So it, it, we do for them what we would have liked them to do for us, say. Uh, and it may or may not have the same effect. If, like our Judy and I have exactly the opposite love languages. So if we don't translate either on the way in or the way out we're probably not going to be able to communicate effectively our care and affection and feeling for one another, right? 
So that's at the channel level. Then at the message level, sometimes, especially if the receiver is a woman, she will receive the 90% of the content of the message based on body language, tone of voice. And because there is sometimes noise in the mind of the communicator, that will impact the message going out, and it will be that piece that she picks up on. So it will be like, I love you. What do you mean by that? What do you want? What did you do? All of those are questions that I have been asked, having said, I love you. Now, what was she doing? She was picking up on the noise that got generated here that affected the body language. Because sometimes I intend a whole bunch of things other than that she feel loved. Right? Maybe I want to say thank you for dinner. Maybe I want to say go to bed with me. Or maybe I want to say, could we clean up the house? And all that gets attached to that message as it goes out the door like a writer on a bill through Congress. And we don't even know it's there, but 80% of women are able to hear that almost as loud as whatever the words are. Right? So... Uh, that gets in the way, and of course, this then produces what's called the feedback loop. So here's an opportunity. Pre receiver feeds back, responds to the, to the communication. And depending on uh, the response here is when I choose a Genesis 1-2 or a Genesis 3 marriage pattern of communication. If I choose Genesis 3 and the feedback loop indicates that somewhere in the process this fell apart, what do I do? Blame, shame, anger. Because I'm coming out of insecurity and fear. I'm coming out of superiority, pride, whatever it is. I may, uh, so, so back on our, our, our language here, uh, say if you were if you were a French uh, woman uh, in in the Second World War and there parachuted into your hometown as this attractive American serviceman, right? Uh, and you fell in love with each other. Uh, what would you do with the language barrier? My guess is over time you would learn French. If you were the American, you would learn English if you were the French woman. What you wouldn't do as the American is speak English louder and slower to this French woman. Because that would probably not be very effective. If the goal is something other than now fighting over your dysfunctional communication. Right? Um, so, Genesis 1-2 says... I will accept full responsibility for my communication. So if you didn't understand it, I will not assume it's because you weren't paying attention. I will not assume it's because you were dense. I will not assume it's because whatever. I will take responsibility for it because it's my pattern of communication. It's what I want to be the outcome. So I'm going to assume responsibility for my communication as a Genesis 1-2 communicator. That makes sense? As a Genesis 1-2 receiver, I will recognize that somewhere by your response to my response, 
that something went off the rails. So now I will double my effort to understand before I respond so that I am responding to what you're actually trying to communicate rather than what I understood in the first place. What I won't do is say, look, this is what you said. I know what you meant. I was right the first time. That's Genesis 3 response. Genesis 1-2 says, time out. Let me make sure I'm understanding exactly what it is that you're communicating so that I can respond to it rather than react to it. Now, that obviously is going to take some time. It's going to take some time to learn the patterns. It's going to take time to learn the, the rhythms, the languages. So good communication, rather than built on expectations and assumptions, is going to be built on an assumption that I, I, I probably am not as good a communicator to this French woman as I thought I was. I may be very, very good to English-speaking people, but that doesn't matter in this case. She doesn't speak English. So I need to learn a language, and then I need to learn timing. Have you discovered in your marriages that sometimes when you bring something up for conversation, it increases the likelihood of clear understanding? Uh, for example, uh, Jude and I communicate way better if we've had a lot of time not communicating, but together. In other words, just leisurely wasted time puts a lot of, of grease in the bearings of our communication. And if, 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 if it's pedal to the metal, if we've just got to, if we're running ragged, if we're, if we're wall to wall with effort and energy, communication tends to be among the first things the wheels come off. Uh, and we misunderstandings occur, and so on and so forth. Does that make sense? Uh, and then, and then patterns. Um, if I'm married to a night person and I'm a, day, a morning person, I need to pay attention to that. Uh, if something's important, I may need to develop with him or her a a code that signals I need your full and undivided attention, all hands on deck. This is something important to me. Right, a, f a couple of uh, a couple that uh, are friends of ours uh, from uh, Glendora have a signal that one either of them hears the other say, um, uh, "Is this a good time?" They know that that means that person whom they love more than anybody else on the face of the earth has something that they'd like to talk about that will require full and undivided attention. And if it isn't, they'll say so, and we'll make time later, whatever it is. But, but that, just that signal helps develop a pattern of effective communication. Does that make sense? Questions or comments on, on any of this before we move on to when conflict goes sideways? If you can... So I, uh, I, between this one and the next one, I'll, which is conflict resolution, I'll try and ask them, what do you fight about? What have you disagreed about? Where has misunderstanding occurred? Uh, or where in, in time or topic is it difficult to be understood? And then I'll ask them to give a shot to this. So usually this is one week, what I've just done now in... Uh, however long a period of time it is. We'll do this in dialogue, and that'll be part of it. 
Um, and inevitably, then, when they come back next week, they'll have had an opportunity, hopefully, to, to oh, yeah, oh, yeah, here was an opportunity, and we either blew it, and I now know why I blew it, or we, no, we, we did it this time. It's changed the way that we think about something. It's way harder than I thought it was, or whatever. Yeah, good. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. Genesis 3 is really easy. It's the default. It doesn't work, but it's really easy. Genesis 1-2 always works, but it's really hard. Yeah. And especially once you've gotten into patterns, like you said, usually when we're dating, we're already, say, 20 or 21 or 25 or 30. We've been communicating most of our lives, and all of a sudden, we can't seem to talk our way out of a wet paper bag. We don't, how in the world does this happen? And the problem, of course, is that this person really matters to us. So, so we'll work really, really hard at the early stages. And then once we get married, it gets harder again because we stop trying so hard. So it's really, I think Michael's point is, is germane particularly. I want to give them some muscle memory of trying this out, paying attention. Uh, and it can be, where are we going to have dinner? Uh, you know, by the time they're doing the engagement stuff, uh, where they're already working on, on communication with in-laws is a big deal. Uh, and how do we how do we understand? And and it's not uncommon for them to have disagreements that are not in substance. They don't even know that they're in agreement. But it's because of the mis mis or dysfunctional communication that they're at at tension. So that's why um, seeking to understand gets me back to what you actually intend. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah, we're there. I had a couple of few years ago, they've been married, I don't know, late 20s, early 30 years, something like that, and they were just pulling the plug. They just, and the, we just don't communicate. We can't communicate. Uh, okay, so they came in, we sat down, and I sat on one end of the couch, and he sat on the other end of the couch, and I just said to him, uh, can you tell me one thing that you think is an issue or the problem or whatever in your marriage? And he said, something that made perfect sense to me. And I said to her, now, what do you think, what did you hear, what did he mean? And she just took off. It's like, okay, thank you. Is that what you meant? No, that's not what I meant. She always, no, 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 no. Try and restate what you said in a way that she can understand what you meant. If that's not what you, no, okay. It took us an hour to get clarity on that one first statement. And at the end of the hour, it was like, well, yeah, that's what I think too. For the first time in five years, they agreed on something, but they didn't even know they were in agreement because of the mistrust and missed patterns of communication that occur when you're coming out of fear or shame or whatever. Thing during 
if that's what he actually honestly means, that's fine. But if he's doing that as a way, and I really think it's fine, right? Uh, Because he may actually not really care. Uh, So now we'll have to find out some other ways of patterning communication. The difficulty is most of the people who say that don't mean it. They're moving into a passive-aggressive pattern. So they'll come in sideways. Um, and, And I've had a lot of those where, I thought you said, well, no, I didn't say. You said you didn't care. Yeah, I know, but this is important. Yeah, that's why I asked you three months ago when we were picking out this color or whatever. Yeah. Bingo. That's the language piece. Yep. Exactly. That's exactly it. That's that, that's that piece where words and tones of voice uh, have, have content and meaning. I'm, uh, I'm walking with a couple uh, now that she grew up as an only child in a, in a mild-mannered family, and he grew up in an Italian family. Are you talking about me? No, no actually, but now that I'm indeed to change my story now. <laughs> but, but he grew up in a family. He, he, was, he was the oldest of five siblings uh, in an Italian family. They did everything at volume 11. So his normal speaking voice feels to her like he's yelling all the time. And she just shuts down. That's exactly what I think about. Really? Oh, yeah. yeah. I know, and my it's dad exactly, would always exactly. loud, and when Dan just talks yep. normal, he's kind of loud, so if he's trying to, uh, it's really loud, and I'm going, no, I can't hear you right now. Yeah. We have that word you're saying. That's interesting. I become her dad. Huh. Even, and I'm Italian, and I'm loud, as you tell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You're very hard. My first thought is, this is who I am. Right. My first thought is, right. accept me for who I am. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, no, I get it. But yeah. We've worked on it a lot, but yeah. I still fail in that area. Yeah. It's because it is who I am. Yeah. I really do try to honor her and bring it back when she says the word. Yeah. Well, and then it works the other way, too, where you realize, no, he's not yelling at me. I need to recalibrate. Uh, but the problem is, is that if there has been um, um, a lot of emotional trauma attached to that, recalibration is almost impossible because you're reacting in fear, almost self-protection, and you just don't even have a chance to reprocess in time to, to, to respond. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. You know, he's talking. This is, we better be going like this. Wow. Okay, so that meant you were really... Yep. Uh, so sometimes when Dan and I would talk, I was telling the story that's going on. And he'd be really going off in his closet and doing this. And I'll stop and he goes, I'm 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, that's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much so. If you can do it, the difficulty, and you've already identified it, right, is that this, by the, by the way you're asking the question, uh, that is that m- most of those kinds of things are so deeply embedded. So one of the things that I have done is I'll give them something to talk about, and then I'll watch them talk about it, and then say, now stop, what are you feeling right now? Right. What 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 is the emotion that is governing that? And and often the other piece on this, Michael, is that nobody has vocabulary for their emotions. I'm angry. I'm sad. That's it for men often. And it's not that they don't have the full range of emotions that women have. It's that they've never been given vocabulary like women tend to have been given. So now we've got to say, okay, what exactly is the feeling there and that can be really really helpful to them because again it's the filters are just there we don't even recognize them right we don't we don't know until the wheels come off and that's when we've got to choose when when that feedback loop indicates that we've been misunderstood okay time out but the problem is, by then, we're already at 60 miles an hour and heading towards 80. Yeah. So, what happens when that's the case? When communication fails is conflict. Uh, and this specifically, to piggyback on Michael's question, uh, is when dysfunction in communication goes emotional or personal, where we take things personally, where we take it as an attack, where we take it as uh, deliberate. Uh, And um, uh, it's not, in other words, where communication over differences now goes to the emotional, at the character logical level. Does that make sense? So if we're just talking about where we want to go for dinner... And we can resolve that at the communication level, throw a dart, right? But if um, in that conversation somehow it starts to move, you never know where you want to go, do you? Uh, Okay, now something's gone sideways here, right? Uh, And and you you were, and then, I mean, I picked up on that one, but that's, that's another marker uh, there are people who have grown up never being given permission to have their own opinion so their task while having maybe even a legitimate desire their task is to make you guess what they want so it's your idea 
because that's the system they grew up in. They can't have, survivors particularly, can't have an opinion because that will mean to be disappointed. If I know what you want, then I'm not going to give it to you because that's how, that's how survivors are. They're not going to put themselves at somebody's mercy like that. But if so, if they do actually, I, I really want Italian. But if I say Italian, then you'll say Mexican. Now what? So I've got a, I don't know. What sounds good to you? Oh, El Cholo something. I'm not sure. How about, how about Olive Garden? Oh, that'd be okay. But if you, only if you want. It just makes the conversation for where are we going for dinner last half an hour. You know, but the next piece here is learning conflict management. Uh, conflict in marriages uh, are learned like we've already been talking about in family systems. How was so for me when I'm doing pre-marriage counseling, it's like how did you see conflict handled and resolved in marriage? How, how did it surface? Uh, did one or the other party get what they wanted all the time? Uh, did uh, was there a cool, calm, collected conversation about it? Uh, was there anger and throwing things and stomping out the door and slamming things and then coming back and kiss and make up? Or or did dad rule the roost and he always got what he wanted? Uh, and then mom found a way to turn it so that she got what she wanted. What? How did it? How did it work out? And, and because you will almost inevitably default to that when you get married, even if that's not your pattern heading into marriage. Again, the reason when you're dating, you've never seen your parents date, generally speaking. So you don't know how they correlate to one another. But now you get married and now you know what a husband is like or a dad is like. Right. And and now you start to just. You say things that you swore you would never say. And who am I channeling here but my dad or my mom or whatever. So family system and just having them take a minute and think about how their family system resolved or dealt with conflict is really important. Okay? Then the next one is their own personality. Uh, you can use... MMPI, you can use Myers-Briggs, you can do, use Taylor Johnson, you can use the four, you know, melancholic, choleric, sanguine, phlegmatic, whatever you want, but it's just helpful to think about how my personality will affect how I communicate. Melancholics tend to generate a whole series of conflicts just internally. Because the melancholic is always thinking, is always processing, tends to always overthink things, tends to have conversations without other people in the room and know how to negotiate. Cholerics always create conflict but are regularly unaware of it because they just assume that everybody thinks they're the smartest person in the room and wants to do what they want to do. So they just come in big and bold and... That's the way it's going to be. And phlegmatics are going to be like, oh, okay. And sanguines are going to be party on wheels. They just don't, 
regularly engage in conflict. Often uh, third or, or last children are sanguines. So they, they don't, conflict is not a big deal for them. There's some other issues that are attendant to that, um, but, but that's, that's, that's why you also want to pay attention. I don't think I've got it on here. No, I don't. Uh, birth order can contribute to how conflict gets resolved. Firstborns married to firstborns will tend to have a higher conflict index. Firstborn sons married to last girls or second girls will tend not to have as much conflict. The least conflictual marriage will be between thirds or lastborns. They won't get anything done, but they'll have a good time. The general rule. <laughs> right? Okay, so the other one is your insecurity and fear index, uh, in which case anger is perceived as power. So if, if, for me, I am working out of anger or insecurity, and I feel threatened by disagreement, I will use my anger the way I have been trained to by my fear and insecurity as a way to get done what I want to get done. So those things will all uh, influence how the individual handles conflict. So what my question will be, how do you guys fight? What do you fight about? Walk me through the last conflict you had. Help me to see what that looks like. Um, where did you feel understood or, or misunderstood? Where did, you, where did you take it personally that it may not have been? Whatever. Um, and, and a couple that says we don't fight, the, the, I, my typical response is then you're not ready to get married. You need to know how to resolve conflict. Now, sometimes they mean that because they're able, thirdborns, last, last, they're able to resolve most of their differences through talking about it, through give and take. They've just learned how to do that their whole life, and they just do it with each other, Right? Uh, so I want to make sure that when they say we don't fight, that's what they actually mean, that they're able to resolve differences and move on with no remainder, with no residual toxicity, with no punishment coming as a back end, uh, nobody's feeling left out, because that happens. It's not common, it's not often, but it does happen. Um, so I want to make sure that that's the case. On the other hand, if they don't fight and they're not that, then one of them is disappearing regularly. And I want to find out who that person is and find out why he or she is hiding. You see it often with a second son marrying an oldest daughter, where he has been trained, if he has an older sister, and he's the second born, and now he's essentially marrying back into his own family system. He has been trained to disappear under her domination. She has effectively become a surrogate mother. And so their dating relationship, he's very, very comfortable because that's what he grew up in. Even if he's resentful and doesn't like it, he knows his role. He knows his place. And so does she. She doesn't like it. She doesn't want to be his mother. She doesn't want to be responsible for him, but she can almost not help herself because that's been her role Growing up, that's the default role. That's why, remember back in the first conversation, we talked about the necessity of differentiation and individuation is essential for moving forward in marriage. If you haven't left home, if you haven't redefined yourself apart from your roles in the system, 
you will inevitably default to them without even knowing what's happening. So, uh, the ways of conflict management. Uh, any questions or comments on this so far? We doing good? Okay, the first one is avoidance. Um, and, and again, I view conflict as intimacy building. It's a great gift. It's the opportunity to know someone. Remember, intimacy we're defining is to know and be known. I define, we define it in that way. So conflict is a way to know somebody uh, who thinks something differently than I do at a deeper level and to learn this other person. If they never come out in, from hiding, then I never get to know them. So I, I think conflict is a great, great opportunity to build intimacy. Couples who, who really risk putting the hard thing on the table and really risk talking about it discover at the other end of that, if they don't quit, if they don't give up, on the other end of that is a deeper and more profound marriage and relationship than they had going in. It's different. You know, princesses died, but now we're adults. And the intimacy on the other end of our fairy tale marriage that's really produced a real life marriage that's actually deep and rich and profound and challenging and difficult and wonderful comes at the price of not avoiding conflict, not avoiding hard topics, not pressing, pressing in on it. It's because if you've got a personality type uh, that you're married to who explodes every time you deal with something, inevitably the person who doesn't explode will just stop talking about things that matter to him or her. So intimacy suffers. And that can start to happen uh, in, in pre-marriage counseling. So what happens when you talk about things that are hard or challenging or difficult? Well, he always loses his temper and stamps out for three days. Okay. Good to know. Do you realize that now you're shutting her down? She doesn't want to talk to you about things anymore. That's more in the pre-marriage counseling rather than the mentoring, but it's helpful to watch. So avoidance occurs when one or both parties, usually one, two types of avoidance. One in which they just generally don't care about the particular difference. They don't have a strong feeling one way or the other. They don't like a conflict anyway. They don't. They don't. Um, they they have an opinion, but it doesn't matter that much to them. And and the tension, the difficulty, the challenge of conflict is greater than they want to deal with. They don't like how they feel. They don't whatever. So they just up. Oh, I'll let it go. And if they can let it go without remainder, without residual baggage, that's fine. In, as a general rule, that's rare, but it's can can be okay. If, on the other hand, the avoidance piece is all of the reasons I avoid conflict are true. I don't like who I become. I don't like what I feel. I don't like how you treat me. I don't like... It's just uncomfortable for three days. You pout for whatever. I just... Uh, right? But the conflict doesn't go away. The tension doesn't go away. The difference doesn't go away. Then it goes... If I'm avoiding it with the person that I've actually got it with... It tends to go internal first. Sometimes it stays there. And if it stays there, then it affects health, uh, uh, gastrointestinal diseases, hypertension, 
heart conditions, some cancers trace back to the internal stress levels. Eating disorders are regularly attached to internalized conflict that's never that's been avoided. A lot of addictive behaviors come from internalized um, um, anger or or differences that don't get resolved. Right? A lot of back problems relate to internalized conflict that. Uh, because I, I don't want to actually have it with the person that I got it with. So that can happen, or it can go in and then come out sideways. So I have a conflict with you, but the kids get it in the neck. I don't want to deal with you, but I'm still angry, so it yeah, redirects. Or some complete stranger on the 405 freeway gets the brunt of my anger, or, or a, you know, a wait person at a restaurant, or a teller at the bank, or somebody... A customer that I'm dealing with or somebody else gets gets it or in the third uh, one is that it turns into a kind of a passive aggressive so here no we're fine we're fine but three days later you get a whack in the back of the head and you, you don't even know what happened because it's not related to the issue we have conflict with it just feels kind of out of the blue right Clearly, that's not a helpful way to build intimacy if there is a tension and conflict. Um, the next one is competition. And again, this is arises in family systems or personality. Uh, competition says, let's get the gloves on. Let's get in the ring. Let's duke it out. Let's, uh, let's, let's uh, uh, um, may the best man win. Whoever, whoever walks out of this and, when, and, and the, the problem is um, twofold, obviously, uh, that it's probably not a good way to build intimacy because if we're in competition, I'm never going to let you know what I actually think or feel or want because you're going to use that against me, right? Um, but because if, if this is our agreed-upon style... Uh, and I'm the initiator of the conflict in one form or another, I will choose battlegrounds of my own choosing that are calculated to help me win. And I will use weapons, because remember, the goal is no longer the resolution of the conflict. The goal is to win, to get what I want, to be victorious. So I'm going to use whatever I have available to me to accomplish that outcome, right? Um, and if that means halting in last week's argument or you're my mother-in-law or uh, how dirty the house is or the failure of the kids at school, I'll bring all and any of that into the boxing ring with me because I want to take you down because me winning is defined as you losing. Nobody ever does this consciously. But this happens all the time if competition is the, is the rule. Um, and then the second uh, thing that is problematic with competition is that while the initiator chooses battlegrounds of his or own choosing calculated to enable them to win, and when they win feel that the war is over, the one who has lost only thinks they've lost a battle. And so they will re-engage the same conflict at a later time and place, now with weapons of their own choosing. Does that make sense? Uh, so this is, again, where the passive-aggressive thing comes in. I had a couple of few years ago, I may have mentioned in another context, but 
He, yeah, he was a uh, 6'3", big guy, Marine, met when he was stationed for a period of time in the Philippines. She was a Filipino uh, medical doctor. So she's about five foot nothing, 95 pounds, blow her away in a windstorm, right? And she's Asian, and she's an Asian female. He's a big, burly, larger-than-life Marine. And so he's not even necessarily aware of the speed bump of her disagreement. She just, he just assumes, of course she wants to do, and her culture has trained her in acquiescence and passivity, even though she's razor sharp, a brilliant woman, she just disappears in, in, the, in the typhoon of the force of his personality. So, and he's been raised in a family that resolves everything at high volume and slam and and she just disappears. And then a week later spends $1,500 on shoes. Round two, I win. Why does she do that? Well, you know that fight that you thought you won last week? Yeah, round two. Oh! But that's, that's the competition model, and clearly it doesn't build intimacy because I'm not going to ever tell you what I actually think or feel because you'll use that as a weapon. Right? Next one is compromise, which so far is the best of the three. Uh, compromise usually works one of three ways. Uh, you want this, I want this, we'll meet in the middle. We'll do something completely other than either of us want as a way of resolving the tension. Or you get what you want this time because I got what I wanted last time. And I know that next time I'll get what I want, so I'm willing to give in or whatever. And sometimes while communicate, uh, compromise is promoted as win-win and it feels like that, most of the time, compromise feels like lose-lose. Neither of us really got what we wanted. We're just settling so that we don't fight anymore. Right? And again, I'm never going to tell you, because we come at compromise like used car salesmen. Right? I'm never going to go, when I go to buy a used car, I'll never tell the salesman what I'm actually willing to pay for a car. And this, I know the salesman will never actually tell me what he's actually prepared and willing to sell the car for. So we kind of lob things at each other, overstating what we want in the hopes that somewhere we can get closer to what I want than what you want. Right? Which is fine if you're buying a used car, but not really good if you're trying to resolve conflict in a marriage. Um, and, of course, I'm never going to actually then tell you what I want and how much I want it because... If the goal is compromise, then I will probably overstate that, or you will think I'm overstating that, or you will now overstate your preference in opposition to that, right? Uh, so that you can get closer to what you want, or you don't have to give it quite so much, or whatever. Again, conscious? Never. Rarely ever is that conscious. So intimacy is not built. The other problem is that compromise requires me to keep score. Uh, I have to remember what I did to get you what you wanted last time because I want to make sure that I get my own back next time. Right? 
And the longer we live in a compromising environment, the, and the problem with that, of course, is that both of us keep score differently. That's also the, the challenge there. Questions, comments on that? So you can see where I'm going, which is cooperation, which says, wait a minute. All of these other methods have had us oppositional to one another. But according to Genesis 1-2, we're on the same team. So when you and I fight, we're taking out our teammate. It does not matter who puts the basket through the ball. Our team gets two points. So who's closest to the basket or who can score on this one? Let the rest of the team feed them the ball. Right? How can I get you what you want? I want you to win. I want to use whatever power I have to enable you to thrive and flourish in this. I am willing to lay down even my own preferences, my own desires, to allow you to thrive, to accomplish your outcomes. Uh, and, and I know I can do that because I'm married to somebody who's in a covenant marriage with me who is also willing to do that. So um, now I want to really know what you want and how much you want it because it's now my object, my goal to get you that. Right? And uh, so, so you can, we, intimacy is built. Uh, you don't have to explain yourself. You don't have to defend your position. You don't have to justify it. Uh, I, I want to know what you want because now that becomes my mission in this particular scenario. And I can put my heart then on the table because I know you'll pick it up and you'll carry it with me. Now, this is obviously ideal, and it takes a boatload of work and energy to get there. But sooner rather than later, as we start to apply a method of cooperation in the Genesis 1 to Ephesians 5 model of mutual submission, conflict now becomes a way of building intimacy. It becomes a way of knowing somebody who thinks or processes or believes or, or hopes about things differently than I do. We still have a difference. It's just the emotion to the difference is all gone. You don't have to argue your point, I want you to win. I don't have to argue my point. I don't have to make you see anything. You want me to win. So now we can agree, we can meet in the middle, what's actually best for us? What's best for the team rather than what's best for me or for you? And again, it's, it's, it's an ideal situation, uh, and it takes a long time to get there. But once you start to put that into practice, you'll start to discover the, the, the genius of the Genesis 1-2 model, where I'm going to use my personal power, however I've acquired it, financial or sexual or emotional or whatever it is, to help you accomplish your goals. I'm going to pour my life out for you. And once you see me doing that, the likelihood of your willingness to do that for me is increased. So what enabled Jesus to be trusted by the church? That's the Ephesians 5 model. He poured his life out for us. So, of course, we'll follow him to the ends of the earth. Yep. Right. And you can't do it as contract. I can't put my heart on the table with a string attached, ready to pull it back. If you don't, I have to risk that in this moment you don't get it. 
I have to be solid enough, in other words, in who I am to not depend on your reciprocation to be okay. And that's the challenge. It seems like there's always going to be unresolvable conflicts about just roots and values. Yes. You may just have a disagreement about what That's it right. Between five and ten, every couple has. Yep. Five and ten irreconcilable differences that you'll be fighting on about on your 50th wedding anniversary. So marriage is the art of living with somebody that you will never understand fully. <laughs> that you just won't get in some particular areas. And now can I make room in my universe for somebody like that? I know with Judy and, and she, she with me, there's still some things. Here we are 37 years in. I just scratch my head. How in the world can anybody think that way? How, 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 how in the world? And I know she does the same thing, you know. But there it is. So. The question is, how do we learn how to put down the sword? The sword is my kind of little silly symbol for my ability to force my own way upon the system. And it's financial, it's bullying, it's anger, it's emotional, whatever it is. How do I lay it down? In other words, how do I choose relationship over being right? And that's what we're after in the resolution of conflict. And like Michael says, how do we move on this, past this, without remainder? Knowing that there are going to be some fundamental disagreements, some fundamental differences, how do I not keep lighting that same candle over and over and over again and learn to embrace those differences? Remember, we talked about this first time out. A lot of those differences are the very reasons I married you in the first place. They were intriguing to me, and now they're driving me nuts. But now I want to move past that to the, to the tolerance and then to the acceptance, but then also now to the celebration, to the realization, holy cow, am I grateful that I'm married to somebody who doesn't look at this the same way I do. Okay, questions? Should we take a short break? Yeah. And then we'll uh, keep going. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.